have you ever noticed sometimes it's hard to trust? And it seems like in our world, it's becoming harder and harder to trust. It, it's hard to trust the news. When you watch the way that the news is reported and the, the bias, the, they can't just give you, you know, the, the Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am. Now, how many of you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, Joe Friday? Would you raise your hands? Is that hilarious, all you old people like me? They don't have any idea what I'm talking about. But anyway, it used to be that you could just get the facts, but now everyone has to color the facts, and it becomes so difficult to trust, you can't trust the news. Then you look at your textbooks, and you can't trust your textbooks. Imagine a textbook that tells you that everything came from nothing, by itself, accidentally as if the law of entropy doesn't exist. It's crazy. Can you imagine someone telling you that order came from random processes? Think about that for a minute. That order, structure, everything that we see came from random processes. I want you to try one of those random processes. I want you young people to go home, get your mom's canisters. All right. And, you know, there's there's salt in there and there's flour, there's sugar, there's brown sugar, there's baking powder. Get all of that. Right. And throw it into the oven. And see what happens. Let me tell you what happens. Your mom will kill you. That is the result of that random process. But no one would expect that to taste good. How many of you would recognize that's not the way to make a cake? Did you all recognize that, right? That's not the way that you do that. Nothing good comes from a random process. You can't trust your textbooks. You can't trust the news media. How about the two candidates running for president? Would you trust either one of them? Seriously. I mean, it's just insane. You can't trust... Now... <laughs> How many of you, it's a big shock to you that you can't trust politicians? That's, a, that's, a, that's kind of funny, isn't it? That anyone would ever trust that is interesting. It, it's, it seems like trust, confidence, it's being shaken all around us. And so we have a generation of young people, millennials, who all of the surveys say that they don't really care about any of that stuff. They're just about their lives and their friends and doing what they can do. But the idea of actually relying on something and believing in something, it's just not there because the Bible says if the foundations be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? Because you don't have anything to stand on. Now, aren't you glad that we have something to stand on? It's God's word. We can stand on it. This morning, I want to speak on trust. I want to speak on trust. Man, don't trust money. Don't trust politicians. Don't trust the news media. But you can trust the Lord Jesus Christ and you can trust His Word. Amen? Let's have a word of prayer and we'll dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You that we can trust You. Lord, You are trustworthy. And here in this text, we find some things about You that we can trust. And it changes everything for us, Lord. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing that I want you to see is you can trust the text. You can trust the text. Look at what it says in verse 8, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Now, if you want to hear the first eight verses 
of this text. You can get last week's message downloaded on the podcast, or I think there's some CDs out there for you. But we're going to start here. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Everything else is going to pass away. The Bible says that this, that this world, it's going to be folded up like a vesture, like a, like a garment, and it's going to go away. It's going to depart. They wax old as doth the garment. That's what the Bible says. And the world is running down. We know that. You know why? Because there's the law of entropy. And God is the one who instituted that law of entropy. It's very interesting. And we'll talk about some of that in a few minutes. But it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing that you can trust the text. Now, if you happened to be reading a commentary on the book of Isaiah, they might tell you that the book of Isaiah was written by two different people, at least two different people. Because when you get to Isaiah chapter 40, where we are, there's a distinct change in the style of the book, in the message of the book. Everything changes. Now, last week we looked at that, how the Bible is divided up into 66 books, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. And it just so happens that the book of Isaiah corresponds with the rest of the Bible. So... Isaiah chapter 1 corresponds with Genesis. Isaiah chapter 2 corresponds with Exodus. And Isaiah chapter 40 corresponds with Matthew. And so we're heading into the New Testament. And of course, the literature, the style of literature changes from the New Testament to the Old Testament. We all know that. And the book of Isaiah reflects that. But because you have unbelieving, infidel commentators, people who do not believe the Bible as it stands, they'll tell you that there were two different authors. So history tells us that Isaiah, the prophet, was, was killed, he was martyred by being sawn in two. So the enemies of God cut the prophet in two, and the enemies of God today cut his book in two. But when, you know what we can say? That God said that the book of Isaiah is true. You can trust the text. Let me show you how you can do that. Keep your marker there in Isaiah 40 and go with me to John chapter 12. You can trust the text. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you think that Jesus knows more about the Bible than infidel commentators? Okay, would you trust Jesus more than, an, than a, an infidel, all right? Now, what is an infidel? An infidel is an unbeliever. Now, that, that kind of word is bad now because Muslims will kill you if you're an infidel, right? And that means that you're not a Muslim. So, I don't want a Muslim to kill me, but to a Muslim, I am an infidel, and I, clou- I, I proudly claim that. I believe in the God of Israel. I believe in the God of the Bible, And I reject Allah, the pagan God of the Muslims. Amen? Now, look at this. Here's what Jesus Christ said about the text. Verse 37. So John chapter 12, verse 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah, that's Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spake. And look at here now, Jesus is quoting. Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's Isaiah chapter 53. Okay, so here John is quoting Isaiah chapter 53. And then look at what it says in verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart, 
and be converted, and I should heal them. Because these things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. All right, so this, when did he see his glory? That is Isaiah chapter 6. So here Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 53. That's after chapter 40. Luke, you got that, that 53 is after 40. We good there? All right. So that's, a, that's the second half of the book, right? And then Isaiah chapter 6 is before Isaiah chapter 40. Are y'all following? Am I being too complicated here? Are we okay? Isaiah chapter 6 is before... That's in the first half of the book that was supposedly written by the first author. And Isaiah 53 is supposedly written by the second author. The only problem is, look at what John chapter 12 says in verse 39. Very interesting. Therefore, they could not believe because that Isaiah said... What's that next word? Again, it is the same author, according to Jesus Christ, the penman that God used to write the book of Isaiah, the same man wrote Isaiah chapter 6 as wrote Isaiah chapter 53, so you can trust the text. Isn't that awesome? I don't need some infidel to tell me not to trust it. I will believe Jesus Christ. You can trust the text. You know, in our world, as I said before, you can't trust the news. You can't trust the newspaper. Often you can't trust your textbook. But I can tell you this, you can trust the Bible. You can trust the Bible. I saw Bill O'Reilly a while back, and I guess when he had wrote Killing Jesus, he said that the Bible's not a history book. That's just one of many things that Bill O'Reilly's wrong about. Because look what the Bible says in Isaiah chapter... 46, Isaiah 46. Look at verse 9. Remember, all right, so remember. Remember the former things of old. What is that? That's God's command to study history. Do you see that? Remember the former things of old. That's God's command to study history. Now, young people, how many of you don't really enjoy history class? Would you raise your hands if you don't really enjoy it? All right. So even if you don't like it, you have to study it to be obedient to the Word of God. Amen? And all the history teachers said, Amen. All right. Now, remember the former things of old. Why? For I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. You can trust the history of the Bible. How many times did Jesus Christ say, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written? The, the Bible says that the Old Testament, these things were written aforetime for our learning. It's there for us. The Bible is a history book, and you can trust the history. And here's the thing that O'Reilly doesn't understand because he's a lost pagan. Here's the problem. This is what O'Reilly doesn't understand. That the historicity of the Bible, the historical accuracy of the Bible, is beyond dispute. There is nothing in the Bible that has ever been proven to be historically false. Every archaeological discovery proves the Bible. There's never been an archaeological discovery to disprove any portion of the Bible. You can trust the text. Every one of your textbooks will be changed. How many of you want your doctor to use a medical journal from 100 years ago? No. That's all going to change. But everything the Bible says about medicine is true. The Bible's not a medical journal, but everything the Bible says about medicine is true. Amen? The Bible says that the life, 
of the body is in the blood. George Washington wishes his doctors knew that. Right? What would doctors do? They would bleed you. Right? They would bleed you. But you can't live without your blood. Someone asked me one time, are you going to give blood? I said, I'm using it right now. I actually have given blood. I'm not against that, but just small amounts because I need it. The Bible said that. We'll see some other things like that in the text. You can trust the text. Trust the text. Not only trust the text, but trust God's plan. Trust God's plan. I don't know about you, man, but but the more that I watch the news and I see current events and world events and economic events, this world is shaking. It, It just appears that the world, it's so volatile. But you can trust God's plan for the world, and you can trust God's plan for you. Let's go back to the text. Look at uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Trust God's plan. Isaiah 40, verse 9. O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Can I tell you something? God is in the book of Isaiah, the first 39 books, as he is prophesying that that Israel is going to be judged. Judah is going to be judged. Jerusalem is going to be judged. The other thing that's so interesting is the judgment comes more than 100 years later. And yet now in chapter 40, God is promising your warfare is accomplished. I'm going to deliver you. I'm not done with Israel yet. That's what Isaiah chapter 40 is teaching us. But what we need to understand is, we're not going to take the time to go there, but in Acts chapter 2, it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Where did the apostles get their doctrine? Now, what is doctrine? The word doctrine. That is God's truth in God's words. We understand what God wants us to know by what he said. How about we all say that out loud? Here's what I want you to say. We understand what God wants us to know by what he said. We understand what God wants us to know by what he said. Everyone, we understand what God wants us to know by what he said. Is that fair? We're people of the book. You don't need Jim Alter. You need the word of God. Amen? If God took me out of here, God would raise up another man to preach God's Word. This ministry is not dependent upon any one man. It is dependent upon the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? Praise the Lord. Now, it's very important that we get this. Not only can you trust the text, you can trust God's plan. Where did the apostles get their doctrine from the Lord Jesus Christ? What is the foundation of that doctrine? Well, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says, And he gave them some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. Well, we know who the apostles were. Where did they get that information? their information? From the prophets. Who are the prophets? Well, the major prophet is Isaiah. More prophecy in the book of Isaiah than in any other book. A full one quarter of the prophecies of the Old Testament are found in the book of Isaiah. I believe it's 781 prophecies are found in the book of Isaiah. And the majority of those are about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the King. You can trust it. So what do we learn from this passage about God's plan? Look at verse 9. O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings. Now, God has been pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem. 
How can that be bringing good tidings? Because here's what's going to happen. One day Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth and He is going to rule and reign from Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Do you know what that means? It's going to be there. I don't care how many nuclear weapons Iran gets. I don't care what intifada is pronounced against Israel. That mountain and the city of Jerusalem will be there for our Savior, Jesus Christ, to rule and reign from. And I've got to tell you, we as the United States of America had better remain a friend of Israel. If we don't, we are going to become as one of the nations. What does God think about the other nations? Have you ever wondered? What does God think about the other nations? The other nations, that's you and me. Have you ever had someone ask this? What does the Bible say about the United States of America? How many of you ever heard someone ask that question? Let me show you what the Bible says about the United States of America. You didn't know that it was here, did you? I'm going to show you what the Bible says about us. Are you ready? You sure? Wake up the person next to you. All right, here we go. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket. I want you to write that right down right next to that. USA. Now that's kind of... It's hard to go rah-rah on that, isn't it? Yeah, we're a drop in a bucket! That's us! I remember I read an article, it was years ago. Buick had achieved number five. They were the number five automaker for quality in the world, the Buick. And somebody wrote, yay, we're number five. It's kind of discouraging. It's like the, the, the new Ford truck. I don't know if you all have seen it. It has so many options on it. It even has heated bumpers. So your hands don't get cold when you're pushing it. It's true. It's true. Chad shaking it. The Bible says, be not dismayed by their faces. Chad, your face isn't affecting me. That's not much of a compliment, is it? The Bible says that, uh, that compared to the nation of Israel, in the book of Zechariah, the Bible says that they are the apple of his eye. And then it says, do you think that you could touch the apple of my eye? So the only way that we as a nation have value in God's plan is as we are friends to Israel. Genesis chapter 12, I'll bless them that bless thee and I will curse them that curse thee. So what should we do? Bless them. We need to stay with Israel because in God's plan, the only way we count is as we are a friend to that nation. That doesn't mean we agree with every political decision that's made in Israel. They're lost people. They need to be saved. And yet they are still God's people. So the Bible says, it's very clear. Look at verse 15 again. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. What's the dust? So you have a balance. You all know what a balance is, a set of scales. All right? And you put one thing on one side, and you put something else on the other, and you see which one's heavier. All right? So take everything off, and the little bit of dust that's left there on the scale, you could write down there if you wanted to, USA. Can I tell you something that's really important? God is not a Republican. Jesus Christ is not a Democrat. 
As a matter of fact, they're not American. We need to understand it's very important that we are Christians first and Americans second. And if we are a godly nation, God will bless that. You understand that's the proper way. I have to love God before I love my wife because I will love my wife better if I love God first. If I'm a Christian first, I will be a better American. But our nation is moving away from God. Are we going to go along with that? Or are we going to stand with the Lord Jesus Christ? We need to trust God's plan. There's coming a day when Jesus Christ is going to return. And when Jesus Christ returns, He's going to gather all the nations to Israel to make war with them. And He's going to destroy all the nations that are against God. Matthew chapter 25, the, that famous passage where it says, Inasmuch as you've done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Many people have heard that. They think that's about feeding the poor. No, 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 no. That is the judgment of the nations where God judges the nations of the earth based on how they treat the nation of Israel during the tribulation period. That's what that passage is talking about. You have the sheep nations and the goat nations. The sheep nations go into rest. They go into the millennium. The goat nations are into outer darkness. They're cast into the lake of fire the, 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 that, Isaiah, or that Revelation 21.8 talks about. We need to trust God's plan. Don't trust the United States of America. The United States of America is strong as long as in God we trust. See, that's the foundation. That's vital. Trust God's plan. The other thing that I want you to see is if, if you look in trusting God's plan, look at verse 9 again. O Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. Do you know what we ought to tell the world? Behold our God. Our God is better than your God. Do you know what Islam needs to hear? Our God is better than your God. Do you know the difference between a Muslim and you? He's willing to die for his faith. Man, it got really quiet right there. It's true, isn't it? I mean, we're afraid to lose hours at work, let alone blow ourselves up. Now, let me be very clear. God didn't call us to blow ourselves up for Him. Isn't that good news? God cares about us. God cares about you individually. He cares about you individually. He doesn't want you to go and kill yourself. Amen? You see, that's the important distinctive, the doctrinal distinctive of individual soul liberty. That my job is to persuade people about the awesomeness of our God and the salvation that Jesus Christ has offered. I persuade them. I give them the truth. The Holy Spirit knocks on their heart's door, affirming what the Word of God says, and they can choose to receive it or reject it. There might be someone in this room that's choosing to reject it right now. And you'll stand before that holy God in judgment. Or you can bow before Him and worship Him as your Savior. And you become a part of His body. What a wonderful truth that that is. But the fact of the matter is, it's very important that we as Christians, we need to be able to stand up and say, Behold our God. He's the creator of the universe. He is the one who made everything and He saved me. He paid for my sin. Behold our God. If you will keep that as a part of your plan, you'll be a part of His plan, according to the text. All right? So, number one, trust the text. Number two, Trust His plan. See Him. Praise Him. Proclaim Him. Oh, I love this. Look at what it says again in verse 9, at the end of the verse. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. 
Isaiah is telling them to praise him before the deliverance. You know, when something good happens, we say praise God, don't we? Praise the Lord. But can we do that during the hard time? Praise Him for the deliverance that He is going to bring. Praise Him ahead of time. All right, so number one, trust the text. Number two, trust His plan. Look at what it says in verse 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and His arm shall rule for Him. Behold, look at this, His reward is with Him, and His work before Him. Do you see that? Very interesting. This shows that we are a part of His plan. When Jesus Christ returns, the Bible says that we will rule and reign with Him. Is that what the Bible says? Andy agrees with me. Does the Bible say that we are going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ? Yes. Do you want to see where we are in this text? Keep your place in Isaiah chapter 40. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Is it warmer in here than usual? All right, so 1 Corinthians 3, look at verse 9. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. Do you see that? Husbandry. That's where, We're His vineyard. We're His garden. He is pruning us and feeding us and growing us. And then we're also His building. He's building us up. Isn't that wonderful? That God is doing that for us. Now go to Ephesians chapter 2, and I want you to see this. Ephesians 2, verse 10. So remember what Isaiah chapter 40 said, and it's Isaiah 40, verse 10, that his work is before him. Look at what it says. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Do you know what Isaiah chapter 40 is saying? You and I are with him. When Jesus Christ comes and everything is good, we are, His work is before Him. We are going to be ruling and reigning and worshiping and bowing down before our King in the kingdom. Trust His plan. Trust His plan. Go back to Isaiah 40. All right, so trust the text. Trust His plan. And then look at verse 11. So we're in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. He shall feed His flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with His arm and carry them in His bosom and shall gently lead those that are with, that are with young. What is this talking about? This is our shepherd. He's not only Israel's shepherd, but He is our shepherd. I want you to think about this, this image of the shepherd in the Bible. It always points to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you think of those shepherd psalms, in Psalm 22, he's the suffering shepherd. In Psalm chapter 20, remember, he dies. If you read Psalm chapter 22, it is a word-by-word word description of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In chapter 23, he's the living shepherd. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And then when you go to Psalm chapter 24, what do you have? Open up thy gates. The King strong and mighty. The King strong and mighty. So we have the suffering shepherd. And we have the living shepherd. And then in chapter 24, the glorified shepherd. 
That's our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, in John chapter 10, you have the good shepherd. In Hebrews chapter uh, 10, you have, in Hebrews chapter 13, you have the great shepherd. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, you have the chief shepherd. He's just our shepherd. And everything he does is good. And what's the shepherd's job? To feed and to protect and to grow his sheep. Do you trust him? Do you trust your Savior? Do you trust your shepherd? You know, it's funny that we as parents, we're shepherds, right? You know, the children want to go somewhere. We don't go there. Don't put the key in the outlet. How many of you actually did that? Did anyone here actually put a key in the outlet? I did. I was supposed to be 6'4". I think that that is what happened right there. And, you know, your parents would say, don't do that. Don't touch that. Don't put your hand on the stove. Don't play in the street. Right? All those things. Don't walk towards the edge of the cliff. All of those things. What are you doing? And it's funny watching parents with kids. You'll see them and the, the little one's just running and parents just kind of do this. Kind of put, you know, guide them. That's what a shepherd does. That's what a shepherd does with sheep. Just And sheep are so dumb. And it's kind of insulting that that's how God describes us. You know, you say, I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and doggone it, people like me. No, you're a dumb sheep. And what's funny is we think we're so smart. And your kids, when they're three, they think they're smarter than you. They really do. They think they're smarter than you. And then they get to be 13 and they know that they're smarter than you. And what do you have to do when they're three? You're gently... Moving them. When they're 13, you're grabbing them by the back of the neck and you say, you're going to come with me over this way. You're going to use your... The shepherd. You're the shepherd. You know that you want to go a certain way because you think you know best. And Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit of God, through His Word, through the preaching of His Word, guides you. Baby Christians, you're, you're hustled along. Teenage Christians, the preacher says, and you have to decide, am I going to allow the Spirit of God, the shepherd, to guide me into the green pasture? He's not trying to take you into trouble. He's trying to take you into peace. You want to go into trouble. You think it's peace. The shepherd knows better. Do you trust him? You trust the shepherd. So trust the text, trust his plan, trust the shepherd, and then trust the creator. This is so cool. Look at what it says in verse 12. Trust the creator who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out the heaven with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Now, I want you to see this. This is really important. One of the great problems that we have is people read texts like that as if it's poetry. You know, it's like the poetry that somebody would write, her eyes are like pools. Right? Cesspools. No, that's terrible. Um, <laughs> beautiful hair all down her back. There's none in her head. It's all in her back. You know, poetry. Isn't that lovely? I'm a great poet. What happens is we read the text 
and we think that these are just metaphors to describe beauty. That's not the way the Bible's written. Every word of God is true, the Bible says. It's not just a picture, it's true. And so according to the Bible, he measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. He meted out heaven. Now think about that. He meted it out. That is that he put it out in a certain diameter, a certain dimension. And you know what science figured out in 1961? That God did that. I want to read you some things. It's the anthropic principle. And that is that there are certain qualifications for human life on the earth. In 1961, astronomers acknowledged just two characteristics of the universe as fine-tuned to make physical life possible. The more obvious one was the ratio of the gravitational force, the, the ratio of the gravitational force constant to the electromagnetic force constant. Now, doesn't that just speak to your spirit? <laughs> Amen! That's right. So, let me read that again. What science realized, they didn't invent it, they discovered the reality that the ratio of the gravitational force constant to the electromagnetic force constant. Listen to this. It cannot differ from its value by any more than one part in 10 to the 40th. That's one part in 10,000 trillion 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 without eliminating the possibility for life. Who designed that? God. Oh, it's random. You've got to take your brain out and play with it to think like that. It's just not... It, it, it defies reality. We've known that since 1961. There's another. Today, the number of known, co the, the number of known cosmic characteristics recognized as fine-tuned for life are more than 150. So 150 characteristics of our solar system that are required for life. Evidence of specific preparation... Uh, Evidence of specific preparation for human existence shows up in the characteristics of the solar system. In the early 1960s, astronomers could identify just a few of the solar system characteristics that required fine-tuning for human life to be possible. By the end of 2001, astronomers had identified more than 150 finely-tuned characteristics. In the 1960s, the odds that any given planet in the universe would possess the necessary conditions to support intelligent physical life were shown to be less than 1 in 10,000. In 2001, those odds shrank to less than one in a number so large it might as well be infinity. It's one to the one, or it's ten to the 173rd. It's impossible. It's impossible. We live in a fine-tuned universe, and the, the the new atheists, these these young angry guys that are coming at your kids and trying to influence them. They say that, that the universe only appears to be fine-tuned. Let me give you some of the characteristics that are, that, that are fine-tuned. Gravitational coupling, electromagnetic coupling, strong force coupling, weak force coupling, ratio of electron-proton mass, distance from the sun, the Earth's rotation period, surface gravity, thickness of the Earth's crust, axial tilt, uh, reflectivity, the Earth's magnetic field, the ozone level, CO2 and water vapor levels. You know, it's interesting. The environmentalists tell us that if you use hairspray, it's going to destroy the world. They really believe that because it'll put holes in the ozone. What I want to ask them is, okay, who set up the ozone properly in the first place? 
It's amazing how many coincidences there are that bring about what scientists call the accident of life. What the Bible says here very clearly, if you look at verse uh, 12 again, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Now, can you imagine if on, our, on our, the tilt of our axis, what if there was too much water? What if the weight of the water wouldn't allow the world to work the way that it does? God ordained every bit of it. He knows it all. Keep your place in Isaiah. Go to Proverbs chapter 3. Trust the Creator. This is such a good verse. Proverbs 3, verse 19. The Lord, by wisdom, hath founded the earth. By understanding, He established the heavens. And you know, the thing about outer space is we know less about it than probably anything else. And yet, physicists and scientists make all these dogmatic statements about space when, when we know it's the final frontier. We don't have any idea what's out there. We, we don't have any idea what's out there. And yet, all these dogmatic and definitive statements, do you know what? They know beyond a shadow of a doubt there's life out there somewhere. Why? Because otherwise it means that God created the world. And i got to tell you, when the Bible talks about the creation of life on this planet, it is in such an exclusive and profound way that that has to be destroyed by life somewhere else in order, in order to destroy the foundation of our belief in our divine Creator. They hate us. They hate us and they hate our truth. Trust the Creator. Trust it. And then, not only trust the Creator, I've got to skip through some stuff. Trust the Redeemer. This is amazing. Look at it for me. If you look in verse 14, let's go ahead and look in verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, He taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. What's that talking about? Well, the, the nation of Lebanon is known for its cedar trees. They use those cedar trees to build the temple. And when I was in Lebanon, they took me up to the highest mountain in Lebanon, and they have a tree there that they say is over 5,000 years old. They're very proud of their trees there. They're known for all of the trees. And what the Bible says is, if you burned every one of those trees with a sacrifice on it, it wouldn't pay for your sin. Because the blood of bulls and goats could never pay for sin. What did it take? The precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Trust the Redeemer. You can't be good enough to go to heaven. You can't work your way to heaven. The only thing that can pay for sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. And here's the good news. The sacrifice was already made. You just have to apply it to your account. Trust the Redeemer. And then, not only trust the Redeemer, but trust His strength. Trust the strength that he gives. Look at verse 17. All nations before him are as nothing. You might want to write USA right there. Now listen, I'm not Reverend Wright. Right? I don't hate the United States. I'm not against the, against the United States. Man, we, how many of you are thankful that you got to be here? I love the United States of America, but I love God more. And in God's plan, the only way the United States is valid is in its association with the nation of Israel. And support up. Very important that you get that. So all nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. 
To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over, spread it over with gold and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation, that's a worship, to choose, or no oblation, chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, God, that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. Now, don't you think it would have been good if Christopher Columbus knew that verse? Again, the Bible is always hundreds and thousands of years before the scientists. The circle of the earth. You can trust the text. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. How does that make you feel? Wow, so much for self-image, right? Isn't it amazing that God himself came down and died for people that are counted as grasshoppers? What condescension. It's amazing. Counted as grasshoppers. And what did he do? He stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them and they shall wither and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. And Revelation 6, 8, and 9 tell us all about that. To whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names. What is he talking about there? The stars. He knows every one of the stars by name. Fantastic. By the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Verse 27, Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, My way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. No, he's not done with Israel. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint. To them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths fail, shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They that mount up with wings, they shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Do you know what that verse, that last verse is teaching? Endurance. Endurance. Trust. Trust. His strength. The Bible says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Just trust Him. When your strength ends, when you say, I can't do this anymore, He can. Rest in His strength. Trust His strength. Trust the text. Trust His plan. Trust the shepherd. Trust the creator. Trust the redeemer. And trust His strength. You might be at the end of your strength right now. Trust His. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Isaiah chapter 40.